Today's episode of On the Shoulders of Giants is brought to you by Best in Vermont Tours and Charters. So, have you ever wanted to have a fun night out on the town with a group of your friends, but no one wants to be the designated driver, and you cannot all fit into a single Uber, and you're worried about DUIs? Our friends at Best in Vermont rent out their 14-passenger van and driver for you to do just that. Have fun, but have peace of mind of not having to worry about the driving. Best in Vermont offers transportation services for weddings, bachelor and bachelorette parties, birthday parties, corporate events, and any other type of event where you need transportation for a group of people. Their Brewhop Brewery Tour Service also provides a fun, relaxing, and unique opportunity to visit Vermont's best craft breweries and get a true look into why Vermont is a leader in the booming craft beer industry. The bottom line is, they handle the driving, so you don't have to. So visit them at bestinvt.com. That's B-E-S-T-I-N-V-T dot com. And now, on with the show. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. Growing up in Zimbabwe, I was surrounded by family that was actively involved in politics. My grandfather was jailed several times and spent as many as four years in prison for being a political activist and a founder member of one of the political parties that was eventually the one that started the war of independence against a racist and oppressive government. His sons would ultimately quit school and join the war and become fighters for Zimbabwe's independence. And even after independence, they and several of my relatives took up positions in civil service in a newly formed and independent Zimbabwe. One of those was my father, who was a two-term councilman in Zimbabwe's third largest city. I know that politics runs in my blood, and I find myself watching hours of political coverage until I have to peel myself away from the television. I've often been tempted to join the ranks, but a combination of things has always held me back. So it's no surprise that I've been drawn many a time to people in public office, and today I've decided to interview someone who may know a thing or two about public office, someone who embodies the spirit of servant leadership, and eight years ago made the decision to plunge into the political sphere. I'm excited to have today Keisha Ram, who in 2008 was voted into the Vermont State House of Representatives as the youngest ever member of the Vermont legislature at the age of 22. Keisha, welcome to my show. Thank you so much, Tino, for having me and for sharing your beautiful story. Thank you. So first of all, 
Um, how does one address a member of the house? Is it your ladyship, your highness? <laughs> well, usually just Kesa. Um, you know, if you're being very formal, you could say the honorable, but I, <laughs> I would love for someone to call me that. <laughs> All right, I'll probably slip it in somewhere in our conversation just so that it doesn't feel right. like I am, uh, you're, you're preempted me there. So great, now that we've got that out of the way, um, you grew up in Santa Monica in Southern California, and after you graduated high school, you moved to Vermont and attended the University of Vermont. Why Vermont? Well, I mean, you know, you know I just was listening to your story and... Um, so many of us have a, a journey like that that has us striking down roots in unaccustomed earth, as Jimbo Lahiri would say in her books about immigrant families. Um, and, you know, my story begins with family in parts of what is now Russia and what is now Pakistan before the borders had changed. Essentially, Jews who were persecuted in uh, Kiev, in what is now Ukraine, um, and my father's side of the family where his great-great-grandfather had really built as the chief engineer of India um, many communities in, in northern India, including in the part of India that became Pakistan. And so there's a lot of upheaval in my family's story, you know, people having to move and flee and start over, um, and my parents, uh, you know, uh, a woman from Chicago and a, and a man from um, parts of northern India found each other at UCLA and had three kids and really worked hard uh, to ensure that their kids had access to education, just like you said about your father and, you know, um, that people really took seriously how they gave back to their community and um, the broader discourse in society. So I took that very seriously from a young age, that people in the U.S. and abroad had fought and lost opportunity and in some cases lost their lives for me to have the ability to use my voice and to participate in the process and to have that mobility that my parents had to say, you know, I want something different and something new. Hmm. Um, you know, having grown up in Los Angeles, I worked a lot on clean air policy. It's equivalent to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day to be in downtown Los Angeles. And I fought hard for the environment, for people who were left out of the conversation, uh, for those who were struggling. And I wanted myself an environment where I felt like part of a community that was closer, that was more human scale. And so I looked around the country and I had scholarships to Alaska, to British Columbia, to New England. You can tell I was crazy and I wanted somewhere cold <laughs> and with seasons. And um, I fell in love with Vermont and and not just a sense of place and the nature and the pastoral scenes that everybody knows so well that Vermont feels like living in a postcard, but the sense of community and the closeness that I got in my relationships with people so quickly. Um, and that has really stayed with me. I, I know I made the right decision. Wow, that sounds uh, like a very typical American story, you know, and <laughs> I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people. Um, so you were born to a Jewish mother and a Hindu father. I'm curious, okay. um, was that a blessing or a curse, uh, so living in a multicultural, multi-religious home? 
You know, I've learned something um, from from applying for scholarships and having to tell my own story and running for office that once you can tell your story and tap into that universal human experience, it's a lot easier to feel like yourself. And I spent a long time thinking, who is like me, this, you know, this daughter of one immigrant and one one Jewish woman from Chicago who, you know, tried to make a household work and ultimately couldn't, but still raised us with shared values. And, you know, it's a really complicated life story. And when I was a sophomore at the University of Vermont, I still felt that way, that it was more complicated than blessed, you know, that it was hard to explain to people why I looked the way I did and who I was and what my foundation in life was. And then something really amazing happened. Um, Bernie Sanders was running for the U.S. Senate for the first time as an independent, and uh, he invited a rock star senator from Illinois to come kick off his big rally at UVM, University of Vermont, where he wanted thousands of people to come out. And thousands of people did come out. Over 1% of the state population, 7,000 people, <laughs> came to hear Bernie and this rock star senator from Illinois. And I didn't know much about who this other person was, except that he was gaining a lot of fame around the country. And Bernie's team asked me if I would introduce the whole event. They wanted a young woman, and a woman of color was very exciting, because otherwise they had all men on stage. So you know, there I was kicking off this event, talking about why it's so important for young people to get involved in politics, from climate change to student debt. We need to have a voice at the table. The mayor spoke, then candidate for Congress Peter Welch spoke, Bernie spoke, and this rock star senator got up to speak. And he started talking about the arc of the moral universe bending toward justice. And he talked about having a father from Kenya and a mother from Kansas. And I thought, I have a father from India and a mother from Illinois, and I never heard a story like mine told in mainstream American politics. And then he said, and I have this funny name no one can pronounce. And I thought, wow, so do I. People are always trying to add a dollar sign and you know, all those things. Um, and then he turned around and he said, and Keisha, you made an outstanding presentation. Bernie, if you don't behave yourself, we may run her for the Senate instead of you. And that man's name was Barack Obama. And it was the first time anyone had encouraged me to run for office. And in 2006, I thought, if there's a place for someone like him in politics, with a father from Kenya and a mother from Kansas, maybe there's a place for someone like me. And I'm proud that we shared the same ballot in 2008. Wow. That is a beautiful story. I love that. Um, I'm going to digress a little bit here. Um, so what was it like? Um, you know, you, you've... Uh, so shared the stage now with President Obama, and then I think you've met him subsequently after that. What's what's he yeah, like? Yeah, you know, it's all downhill from there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's he like um, away from the cameras? Because I'm assuming you probably spoke to him off air, so to speak, and you saw him interacting with people. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, of all the Vermont politicians who were in that room who had every reason to earn a vote, or to come up to me and say, hey, you have a bright future, kid. You know, I want you working on my campaign team, or what are you doing next? Uh, the first person to come up to me was Senator Barack Obama from Illinois after the event, and he said, I meant what I said. You have an incredible future. I hope you stay in touch. And I thought, you know, this guy is going places. I went home that night and said, 
I think he's going to be the next president of the United States. Why else would he be in Vermont helping Bernie? I mean, this is a big deal. And, uh, you know, people thought I was crazy at the time. But lo and behold, that fall rolls around and speculation in the fall of 2006 is that this man might be a contender for president, that he's, you know, inspiring people and bringing hope all over the country. Now people know his name. And um, in the fall of 2006, I went to work for Diane Feinstein from California in the U.S. Senate. I wanted to work for a woman, and I really wanted to see what that experience would be like to actually be in Washington, where these big decisions are made. I had been pretty cynical up until that point. And when I got there, I told the other interns in the office my story of meeting Barack Obama. So they all said, we all want to go meet him at his constituent breakfast, and you know him. You have to take us. I said, I don't really know him. He probably won't remember me. And uh, we go to the constituent breakfast anyway, and I'm in the front of this group of interns, and we're getting closer to him in line where you take a picture with him and poor Senator Dick Durbin, the senior senator from Illinois, who's completely forgotten. And I get up to the front of the line, and I look at, at Senator Obama, and I say, you know, you probably don't remember me, but, and I had much more to say about how inspiring he is and our story of how we met. And he turned to Dick Durbin and he said, I met this young woman in Vermont earlier in the year. She is so impressive. She's going to be in the Senate one day. What was your name, Keisha? I was speechless, obviously. And, uh, I I'm not sure all that. the interns went giddy after that. They must have just Oh, God. So, of course, he does know you. I was telling the truth. But really, for me, what that says is he's not just a good politician. He's not just somebody who remembers people because it may benefit him one day. He's somebody who elevates people around the country doing good work. That is mm. the spirit of a community organizer, somebody who says, that's someone who can inspire people. And if I'm ever president or I'm ever leading this country, I can't do it all by myself. I need to find the leaders and the helpers and the people who make a difference, and I need to elevate them. And that's the kind of person he is, and it taught me a lot about what true leadership looks like. Wow. That's that's fantastic. It's really inspiring to, to hear that. I'm curious. Um, I have a friend who whose daughter is mixed race and uh, was complaining about the fact that um, she feels like a yellow flower in a purple flower field. And mm. she wants to leave the state of Vermont so that she can become a yellow flower in a multicolored field. And right. it's like for you, you kind of looked at it the other way. You were in the multicolored field and you actually sought out to go and be okay with being different in sort of uh, to, to keep with this illustration in this uh, purple color, colored field. And mm -hmm. how, how is it um, sort of being a minority? And I know uh, you've done a lot of things. I mean, um, so fast forwarding a little bit, uh, you were the first uh, minority student body president in the history of the University of Vermont, you know, only the seventh female president in, in the university's 200 plus year history and also the youngest member of the legislature. So, you know, how do you kind of overcome those challenges and uh, what advice would you give to somebody who's struggling to find their voice? Mm, um, I would say it's easier said than done, but not to be a shrinking flower, right? Not to be a shrinking violet, but the mm. yellow one. <laughs> yeah. The, one. The, the state of Vermont is changing. It's becoming more yellow and purple. 
you know, it's becoming more multicultural. Over um, 90% of the new growth in population in Vermont is people of color. And when I thought to myself, just like that young woman, you know, it's really hard to be in Vermont. I stick out a lot. I don't know if I fit in here. I don't know if people are accepting me as I was starting college. Soon I realized that there was a real need for people who could build bridges and who could be that voice. And, you know, it meant a lot to me to say, I can make a difference in Vermont by virtue of who I am, not in spite of it. And I can see all the assets I bring to the table as someone who grew up in my Indian immigrant father's restaurant where I watched him struggle dealing with authorities and the health department and knowing that there are immigrant businesses that are opening here where they need the same kind of support from somebody who's maybe one generation further along, has been here a little bit longer, knows the language, let's say, and can really help build those bridges. Now, I have to say, all of that is important, but I, I would want this young woman to be able to affirm her own identity first. And I came here with a real strong identity, a real sense of who I am from a very multicultural high school, uh, where I was not anything special at all. You know, I was definitely your run-of-the-mill dandelion, you know, <laughs> in a place like L.A., and then I got here and people said, wow, what an interesting story. You're so different. Um, and I certainly dealt with the same thing she did. But she needs to, you know, go somewhere or meet the right people to make sure she feels grounded in who she is. Because she has to put her own safety mask on before she can assist others. And if that means being somewhere where she doesn't have to feel like she sticks out all the time, then she should do that. Or if she needs to meet mentors and friends and see other faces, know other people, that's important too. It's one of the reasons that I've always run for office is because I want, you know, young women like her to look up and say, that could be me. I can see myself there because there's somebody blazing that trail for me. And that's what we owe to young women like her. Hmm. Were you born to be a politician? Gosh, um, you know, I did take it very seriously at a young age and my first elected office was uh, in fifth grade. I was the student council president. And it was because three boys were running, and I had read all the biographies of women's rights leaders and civil rights leaders, and I knew that there was some grave injustice about three boys running for student council president, no girls. Wow. And so I ran, and I won, and I took it very seriously. Um, and so I've always had that spirit of wanting to speak up and uh, share my voice and give back, but really over time what I was blessed with was a reason to do that because I think sometimes young people can get so caught up in this idea of leadership for the sake of leadership. I need to put it on my resume. I need to impress people. I need to have something to write about on Facebook. And instead, you have to be passionate about something, and that will drive you forward. And so I took my hiatus from politics after fifth grade and focused more on the environment and knowing that I had friends who traveled, you know, two hours on the bus each way from Compton to get to my high school because it was a better school and they wouldn't have as much fear about bullets flying while they tried to get an education and recognizing that that's an environmental problem, that people who don't have a safe, healthy community to live in is something that I want to change, that I want to make different. And that's what drove me to get involved in law and policy, write my thesis about what environmental justice looks like in Vermont, um, and ultimately, I introduced legislation um, with the help of a sitting legislator when I was a senior at UVM. And I thought, wow, 
people really listen to me. You know, I don't have to wait like I might in California to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars and have gone through every different political body, kissed all the rings to do this. Vermont has a very accessible political system, and I don't have to give up who I am to enter those halls of power. Hmm. So just sort of going down that path of having a reason to be involved in politics, um, I believe the pay, at least as far as uh, being in the Vermont legislature, is about $10,000 a year or so. Um, so right. you cannot be in it for the money. Um, so how would someone be able to invest themselves into a life of public office while still being able to enjoy the kind of lifestyle that we all crave, you know, having a house, a car, a boat, or, you know, being able to go on vacations and all of that stuff, because clearly on $10,000 a year, that's not going to cut it. Well, I mean, that, and that's a great question. And it is something we struggle with in the state. Um, you know, good governance is one of the cornerstones of how you actually accomplish so many other things. And in Vermont, people, as I traveled around the state on the campaign trail, people at least started to talk about what it might look like to change how we allow people to serve so that they can do a better job. It came up in the governor's race already. Should we go to a three-month session so people have an easier time with jobs? You know, should we pay people more um, so that they can actually serve? Should we move to just serving on Mondays and weekends so people can, you know, work the rest of the week? Um, there's all kinds of ideas out there about how we make sure more people can be at the table. And I don't know that we found the right one necessarily. Um, what I do know is that the people who do serve in Vermont are, you know, the salt of the earth. They usually are people who are retired teachers or, or folks who served in the military or farmers or, you know, um, police officers and social workers. And they really do get the communities that they're serving. But that said, if you're at a certain time in life when you have to take care of your family, pay for a mortgage, support your kids through college, it's very, very difficult to serve, and we haven't figured out how to change that yet. What I would say is it's an exciting opportunity for young people. Often we hear there's no young people because it's so hard to serve. Well, you know, I found that a lot of employers saw me as an asset, and even though it was difficult, it required a lot of hard work. That's what you're getting into to serve in the legislature, and there's really a way when you're young to make it work, to afford that salary. The biggest challenge is benefits, and that's why regardless of what we do to support legislators, we need to help everybody decouple their employment from their benefits so that people have health care and don't have to think about a job um, just so that they can stay healthy and afford to go to the doctor. And so, you know, it's not just legislators. It's a lot of people who struggle how to figure out how to make it work. And, um, you know, Serving in the legislature is an incredible privilege. We do have to figure out how to make it more accessible for people. Hmm. So I want to just stay on that path, and which we fair, are on. You know, to be fair, in, in New Hampshire, they make $100 a year. So we're doing a wow. lot better than some <laughs> of the other the, You guys are the 1% then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so let's, let's sort of uh, stick with that and give, maybe if somebody is listening, give them a picture of what life is like in the legislature. So most people's views on politics is shaped by either movies or cable news. You know, it's, it's either glamorized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's either glamorized or vilified. You know, uh, what misconceptions are there about uh, being in public service and 
where does your passion for politics come? Mm. You know, I'll start with my own misconceptions when I uh, when I started in the legislature. I mean, first of all, I did tell my mother, "Hey, I won my election, so I'll finally have you know dental care and health care." <laughs> it is you are really scraping by and trying to figure out how to make it all work. Um, you know, I also thought you're a bad person in politics if you don't read every bill and know every single thing that's going on. And what I realized early on is that it's simply impossible to do a good job talking to your constituents, meeting their needs, being a good member of your committee, introducing legislation that serves the state and your values and in your community um, if you're trying to read every bill and know every single thing that's happening. And what that means is not that you don't try to understand, especially if something's coming to the floor and you're going to be taking a vote. Of course you should know, you know, what you're voting on. But how you figure out what's going on in the building and your best service you can provide to all Vermonters is by building relationships. And so the best piece of advice I got early on in the legislature was something gets everyone up in the morning and keeps them up at night. And you want to know what that is because that will allow you to work with that person, whether they're a Democrat or Republican, a progressive, an independent, a member of the House or the Senate, man or woman, whatever the demographic. Even if you're 22 and you're starting in the legislature, you know, and you're, um, you know, you want to earn people's respect, you do that by understanding what they're passionate about. Hmm. And so I did just that. I would go out to dinner with the Republican legislators or, you know, meet people in the hallways or go out to a cup of tea with somebody and just better understand them. And what we see on TV is so much of the fighting and the partisanship and the gridlock. And that's so far from your everyday experience as a legislator. Most days, you're looking at colleagues from different parts of the state, from different parties and different backgrounds, and saying, how can we do this together? And one of my greatest mentors and friends in the legislature, um, Patty Comline, who was the Republican minority leader when I started, an incredible uh, incredible advocate for her community. When she was Republican minority leader, she was navigating a Republican governor's veto of marriage equality. And she supported it. And, you know, that was something that was really uh, impacted me. And I just would always ask her for thoughts and advice about how you give your best service. And she said something to me that I won't forget. She said, if we're all doing our job, then the majority steers the ship and the minority points out the rocks. And we're all headed in the same direction. And that is how I think of service in the legislature and in government. Um, and that's how so many people do. They get up every day wanting to give their best service and wanting to help all Vermonters. And sometimes we disagree about how to get there, but we often agree on the problems we're trying to solve. And so we can start there and make a difference. And we don't see enough of that from the media or from reports on what it's like to serve in government. Right. So I guess uh, you identify with uh, Marco Rubio when he was asked like where he was when all these votes were happening and he said that uh, he was out meeting his uh, constituents and understanding (laughs) (laughs) I think I've missed a handful of votes in my eight years I've maybe missed five votes um, mostly because I was sick or and I oh I should say though I do have some gaps in my memory about that. I did miss several more. I probably missed as many votes in two weeks as I did for the rest of my eight years because last year in the legislature, um, my father passed away unexpectedly. Um, So 
you know, no, I, I try to be there for all of the votes. Um, but, you know, we introduce over a thousand bills in the legislature each year and um, about a hundred or fewer pass. And so, you know, you can really drive yourself crazy thinking, why'd you introduce this bill and what does it mean and what's it going to do? And then it will never get anywhere. It'll never get out of committee. If you want to get a bill passed, you have to work really hard. And so if you're focused on doing your job, often it means, you know, getting that bill you sponsored out of committee rather than worrying about the many bills that will sit on the wall and not right. go anywhere. Right. Uh, I'm sorry about your father. Um, Thank you. So, sort of, what does a typical day look like? And you know, I want you to get into some of the details, like uh, who makes coffee, who sits next to who. You know, uh, how do you interact with <laughs> the speaker and and all of that. Mm. Well, first, I would say every American, everyone should visit their government building, their state house, the U.S. Capitol. Because I have to say, every day I would walk up to the State House, look at the Golden Dome, look at the building with all its history and all its splendor and everything it contains, everything it's been through, and I would think, I am so lucky to serve here. And I can't tell you, I'm sure so many legislators, so many people who work there start that, their day every day that way. Um, so you walk into the State House and you immediately feel the history and the commotion and sometimes you get there earlier than others and it's eerily quiet. You know, sometimes you, you're there and things are already happening and you feel behind. And, you know, one of my, my closest friends in the legislature, her name was Bernie um, and she was um, helping to manage the cafeteria and she was always there ready to make eggs and, you know, tell me about her day, ask me about mine. Um, and those are the really important people to know in the building are the people who can make you a sandwich after the cafeteria is closed and you're starving and you have oh, hours really? more of hope. <laughs> you know, the people who sort the mail, the people who um, draft the legislation are, are, are lawyers who actually write the legal language for the bills. Um, the custodial staff, those are the people who really make government function. And so, you know, I would often start my day or end my day chatting with somebody, you know, how are things going, how's your family, um, and you really, really get a sense of what's important and what matters when you talk to people beyond just your legislator colleagues and the lobbyists. But of course, you know, then you get in the cafeteria, you um, you make your own coffee, uh, you talk to your colleagues about what's going on, what's happening with this bill, what, you know, what do I need to know, here's what's happening for us in our committee. And for most of the session, which is about four and a half months, you spend a lot of time in your committee. And so people on your committee become close friends. They become, you know, people that you turn to for thoughts and advice. Whether they're Democrat, Republican, or, or anything else, they're the people that you really look to and say, how do we solve this problem, you know, together? And so, you know, you're spending a lot of time in committee. And then certain times of the session, there's a lot of bills on the floor because you're trying to get the bills over to the Senate on time or you're getting a lot of bills back from the Senate, or you're trying to finish up the whole session, um, those are the times when we're on the floor for hours at a time debating and getting into it with one another. And the rest of the time, you know, we're really, you're trying to meet your colleagues outside of the state house or the committee environment as well and just get to know them as people because it makes the whole experience more enriching. And that's your legislative service. But of course, during those four and a half months and for the rest of the year, you're staying in touch with your constituents. You're trying not to let 24 hours go by before 
your constituents hear from you. You're solving their problems. You're on the phone with them. Um, and then, you know, there are some of us who also work on top of that, if you can imagine, and, you know, try to get an, um, a full day work, a full day's work or a part-time work, um, work on the weekends and, and sort of keep it all together. Um, wow. And that's how someone like me pieces it together. How do you keep it all together? I mean, the, <laughs> because I can only imagine the amount of reading you got to do for keeping up with these bills and trying to touch base with all your constituents and managing a household plus plus a job and and so on. Yeah, you you just have to take stock of it every day and say, what am I passionate about? What can I achieve for Vermonters? Why am I here? And that keeps you going. It keeps you going through so much. And, you know, every day there's a small victory. There's a small defeat, but there's a small victory. And you have to hold on to those. You get a bill through a committee or you have a hearing for your constituent or you know you've made a difference in somebody's lives. You, you go speak in a classroom and people say they look up to you and they admire what you're doing and they want to be president someday. And that is, is total fuel. In, you know, in my furnace at least. I mean, that is what I love, if you can't tell. And I think, you know, it's hard to maintain it forever. Um, so people burn out on the work and that's when you have to know, you know, I should give someone else a turn who's, who has that passion, who wants to be here every day. And, you know, that's the, the important work of, uh, of elections and reminding ourselves and having our constituents remind us, you know, what they really need and want out of our service. Right, right. So is, do you have like a laundry list of things that uh, your constituents want you to get accomplished? Because I can imagine there's probably, I mean, you go to every house on my street, each person has got their own idea of something that's important to them. How do you prioritize that and decide in your own I, mind what you're going to do? Absolutely. I literally kept a checklist. Um, I keep a checklist of ideas for bills or exploring what's going on in other states on a particular issue. Or, you know, I mean, I had the great fortune for these last eight years of representing the University of Vermont with a lot of students who are working on their thesis, and I never forgot, you know, that once upon a time I was that student, and a legislator helped me introduce a piece of legislation, and it may not have gone anywhere, but it inspired me to serve. And so, you know, not only do I keep checklists, but I've always had one or two interns come with me to the state house um, who were in high school or college who just wanted to understand the process and be inspired. And, you know, for as much as they gave me or helped me when they would sit in another committee and take notes or help me research a bill, um, you know, I know they were getting a lot out of the experience of just absorbing what's going on in the state house. And so those are the kinds of things where, you know, people are much more um, thoughtful than you might give them credit about how much you're trying to juggle. And so most of my constituents would often start an email or a phone call by saying, I know how busy you are and I just appreciate your time. Um, you know, here's here's what I'm interested in or can you help us with this? And, um, you know, you're, they're your neighbors and they understand, but they also, um, you know, hope and believe that you'll stay in touch with them and and uh, go go to Montpelier to do what they sent, sent you there to do. And so, um, you know, you just take that seriously and work as hard as you can. Right, right. Um, so I'm trying to stay steer as clear away from the actual political side of the politics uh, 
But I'm going to... Everything is political. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to dip my toe ever so slightly into, into this um, and uh, ask you, you know, uh, this country aggressively promotes multi-party democracy around the world. Uh, and yet there's really only two political parties that wield the power in the country. Um, how can people... Like myself, I am very much uh, a walking contradiction when it comes to political issues. Um, how can people like myself who are democratic in one aspect and republican in other get involved in politics when the choices are so binary? Mm, absolutely. Well, you know, I have to say it feels incredibly binary right now at the national level. Um, you know, and that trickles down into how people feel and react to local politics. Um, but 75% or more of our decisions about the environment or taxes or any number of things that affect our daily lives are made at the local and state level. And, you know, here in Burlington, Vermont, for example, um, the school board members are still elected without being affiliated with a party. And um, you know, so many uh, select boards and, and local government officials still don't have a party. And they do good work for their constituents all the time. You know, at the state level, so often it's about how we can work together rather than how we can tear each other apart. And so for people to really get involved at the local level, I think they'll see that there's, you know, a whole other world of folks just trying to get along and not make it such a binary System. I think Vermonters have a very proud tradition of electing the person and not the party. Um, we've seen that with Bernie, you know, many times. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I encourage people to have faith and for the time being to try to change the parties from within. You know, that's, that's what I did. And, um, you know, it was because of people like then-Senator Barack Obama and Governor Madeleine Kunin that I saw a place for myself. And I worked to carve out even more of a place and to call out the two-party system when it needed to be called out. Now, that said, we have many people who are independents now who don't, don't identify with either party, and certainly this presidential race is helping people further along in that pursuit. And I think we will see these two political parties evolve to meet the needs of Americans or become obsolete. And, you know, I am poised to be part of one or the other. Um, I certainly want to help change the Democratic Party from within. Um, but otherwise, if we don't shape the change, the change will shape us. And we don't know what that will look like. And so I will continue to push from within to the extent I can. But I do appreciate the voices that are calling for third-party system or a change to our electoral politics. Because I think it's important that we take stock as Americans every once in a while of whether or not our system is built for people to have access. Beyond just having the binary two-party system as a problem, the bigger problem is how we finance campaigns and how our districts are drawn, how our borders are drawn around our political districts. Right. And those have been two sleeper issues, um, you know, until somebody like Bernie Sanders got in the race and said, you know, these are the underlying issues that give us the choices, the false choices that we have now. Um, and, you know, that's something that we can continue to work on. That's that's super. That's great advice. And they, they really are false choices. And I uh, thank you for sort of clarifying that as well. 
Um, so given that you predicted uh, President, well, Senator Obama to become, to run for president <laughs> one day, do you have any tips for future presidents of the United States? Mm. Well, I'll tell you this. I am part of a group that is under the umbrella of the People for the American Way Foundation. And the group is called the Young Elected Officials Network. And it's over 500 young elected officials from across the country who have progressive values and are serving everywhere from their school board to Congress. And when I get in a room of these folks, it is the most diverse, dynamic, incredible group of people, and it gives me hope for the future. And I encourage people to get involved. Um, the Young Elected Officials Network is uh, preceded in age by the Frontline Leaders Academy and Young People Four organizations that help young people get involved in the process at whatever age and hoping that they become those young elected officials and then make their way to Congress and then turn around and help the next generation because the way we're going to shape change is going to be long term and I absolutely know someone in my network that I get to see watch um, become mayors and members of Congress and run state government um, one of them is going to be president and so I'm just excited to see which one it is. That's exciting stuff. So how does somebody join? Could you kind of elaborate on that so anybody who's listening who wants to get connected can do that? Absolutely. Um, if you go to the People for American Way Foundation website, PFAW, P-F-A-W, you can find a lot of information about these three partner programs. And I think the world of them, I've been a trainer for Young People for and Frontline Leaders Academy, and those are students everywhere from high school to college, to recent graduates who are interested in getting involved politically and knowing the nuts and bolts. And many people who come out of those programs end up running for office or helping others run for office. Um, it's an incredible organization to be a part of. And there are others like it. You know, finding affinity groups, um, getting involved will just help you get your head above water and see that there are incredible people doing incredible things in the country. And there's no time to despair. There's no time to talk about moving to Canada, depending on who gets elected president, <laughs> because we have serious work to do, and it happens at all levels. Exactly. So given your uh, setback and your campaign for lieutenant governor, what's the next step for you? Uh, I would love to know, and I think others would too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, we ran um, an incredible you know, full, campaign full of heart and soul um, for a lieutenant governor, a statewide race, and I'm 30. Um, and by all accounts, you know, it was an incredible run for somebody who's young and, um, you know, just breaking out onto the statewide political scene. So I'm feeling really good about it. The future feels wide open. Um, it was, it was an investment in what comes next. And I'm eager to figure that out. I was with, uh, Governor Madeline Cunin today and yesterday. She's an incredible mentor as our only uh, female governor, we hope to change that this year with Sue Minter. Um, and she just said, take time to listen to music and enjoy nature and talk to your closest friends and the people who love and support you and the answer will come. And so, you know, I'm putting a lot of faith in that because, you know, everyone from Barack Obama on down has lost an election and it's much more about how you pick yourself back up how you demonstrate your resilience. Um, because that's what we need in politics at every level. 
is, is people who are willing to say you win some and you lose some. Right. And at the end of the day, I will continue to stand up and give back in whatever way I can. Absolutely. So what are you listening to? Mm, I went to an incredible um, solo violin concert today. Um, it was Bach in church. Um, so it was an incredible solo violinist Bach performance from Susan Kim, who grew up in Plattsburgh um, and is a world-renowned violinist. I'm amazed that we have him in our ranks and in our midst, and um, he continues to help organize um, the Lake Champlain Chamber Festival, Chamber Music Festival. And so we have some incredible access to free culture right now, just right here in Burlington. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more there. So um, in closing, this is a question I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have mm. a have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, uh, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Hmm. Wow, I mean, I think what I would say is what a lot of people said to me on the campaign trail, um, because I don't ever want to forget it, and sometimes I do, which is, they would say, you know, you're so so passionate, so willing to explore ideas, so willing to say yes to things, even if you don't have the answer, that you'll find it, that you'll be intellectually curious, that you'll, you know, keep wanting to meet people and hear their stories and solve their problems. And don't ever lose that because at some point it feels like at a certain age you give up or you just think, you know, you can't make the difference that you wanted to make. And... um you know, people said to me, I hope you don't lose that. And so, you know, at moments when I feel my most despairing, um, just to know that that is a gift in and of itself and that people are so hungry for that in leadership and in politics. And just to keep remembering um, to be myself, to be curious, to explore, and to always put as much energy and passion into everything that I do. If people want to get a hold of you or to learn more about what you do, how can they go about doing that? It's really easy to find me on Facebook, Keisha Rahm, and that's K-E-S-H-A, no dollar sign, um, R-A-M. And uh, through there, send, shoot me a message on Facebook, find me on Twitter. Um, my email is keisha.rahm at gmail.com. Um, you know, we'll see what's next for me, but in the meantime, happy to have a cup of coffee or tea or go for a walk with anybody and talk to them about what they're going through, what next steps they need to take, um, you know, what my path looks like. I'm always available for folks, and I really do love helping people on their path as well because so many people help me on mine. Super. I must say, Keisha, it's been a pleasure having you on my show. Thank you so much for your, for your time and uh, for sharing with us your story, your knowledge, your insights. Your passion radiates through you know, <laughs> just these conversations, this short uh 30 minutes, 45 minutes that we've had together. And it's obvious to me that uh, what you do is important to you. And so despite the setback you had in your campaign as Lieutenant Governor, I want you to know that uh, we are very proud and grateful to have civil servants like yourself who work tirelessly over the years with little to no financial reward uh, to make our lives better and to make our state better. And um, whatever you decide to do in 
the next phase of your life. I sincerely hope that you decide to do it in Vermont and that we are beneficiaries of your service. Thank you, Tino. And same to you. I've heard your story now, and I hope you run for office. And, um, you know, if I can be part of that journey, please let me know. So thank you. Thank you very much. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap up the show with that. Next time on the podcast, On the Shoulders of Giants, I welcome to the show Andrea Gagne of 14th Star Brewing, a veteran-owned craft brewery in St. Albans, Vermont, that focuses on the local community almost as much as it does on brewing great beer. I had very, very little knowledge of the craft beer industry. Um, Other than a few tastings, uh, I really didn't know much at all. I was at a pharmaceutical company. By the time... um, I started working here. I had been with a pharmaceutical company for 12 years. Uh, it was just very, felt very stagnant in my position. I was a project manager uh, in, in R&D. Um, and it was, you know, it was kind of the same thing day in and day out. Um, and I didn't, there wasn't a whole lot of personal interaction. Um, and I've often said that I'm, I'm a people person. I'm not necessarily a process person. Um, I had just finished my master's degree uh, in business management with a with a concentration in human resource management. So when I found out that they were expanding, I had actually hoped to uh, somehow come on board in in a human resource role. Um, I was never going to put Stephen in a position, though, uh, of having to tell me, you know, sis, I love you, but no, we can't work together. So I never said anything to him. (laughs) I was just secretly hoping that, you know, he would ask me. In fact, um, I was helping him to identify people and skill sets that would be helpful in running the, the brewery. Um, and actually, it was his friend one day that he was talking with him. He said, you know, man, I wish you could find someone like my sister to run the brewery. And his friend said, well, have you asked your sister? 